You're listening to the Outdoor Photography Podcast, Episode 5. Today, we're sitting down with fine art, landscape, and nature photographer Brenda Tharp to talk about how to train your photographic eye to see compositions using visual flow and elements of design in composition, the importance of connecting with nature, and so much more. So stay tuned. Hi, I'm Brenda Petrella, the creator of Outdoor Photography School. Join me as I sit down with top landscape and nature photographers and outdoor industry experts to chat about creativity, composition, photography tips and techniques, essential gear, safety in the outdoors, respect for nature, and so much more. Tune in every week to learn how to create compelling and impactful images while exploring and enjoying the natural world. Welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Hey, everybody, Brenda Petrella here, here to help you create better images and reconnect with nature. I'm really excited to share with you my conversation with today's guest, Brenda Tharp. Brenda is a full-time photographer, educator, and speaker with a passion for the natural world. Her landscape and nature photographs have been used by Apple, Audubon, the Nature Conservancy, the National Park Service, Sierra Club, and more. And she is the author and contributor to many photography magazines and books on composition, which I definitely recommend you check out. She shares her love for celebrating the beauty of this world through her workshops and through her fine art prints, which are for sale on her website at brendatharp.com. And so without further ado, please enjoy my fun conversation with Brenda Tharp. Brenda, welcome to the Outdoor Photography Podcast. Thank you so much for being here today. I'm really excited to be connecting with you. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. Very excited to talk photography all the time. Oh, excellent. Excellent. Well, so not only do we share the first, the same first name, um, but I believe if I did my research right, we also share the same home state of New Jersey. Yes. Oh, you did. Well, <laughs> you did good research. <laughs> yeah, I'm a Jersey girl. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, I me was too. in the north. So, Where were you? Uh, around Trenton, just north of Trenton. So on the west side, okay. west central New Jersey. Well, I was yeah. north central, Morris County, Morristown, oh, yeah. that area. Yep. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. My parents and my brother are still there. So I... But pre-pandemic, I still go down there. Well, you don't have an accent. You know, people always joke about the Joysy accent, which is, of course, right. Hoboken <laughs> in that whole river sort of area. And there are certainly other parts. And and yet I've never felt like I had a strong accent. Now, people say, oh, I can hear it. But like I listen to you I, and I don't hear it. Right. I don't hear it yeah, in you either. I, but it's funny. I, I came, So I live in Vermont now and I uh, came up to the Vermont, New Hampshire area about 20 years ago to go to graduate school up here. And people told me that I had the New Jersey accent. And I didn't think I did until I went back home to visit my family after a couple of years of living in the north. And I was like, oh, I hear it now. <laughs> exactly. That's what happens to me. My whole family's still back east. And um, are they? And yeah. Jed can always hear it if I go back home to visit family for a week and I come back to California. You know, it's like, well, and I, I moved, I was in Colorado in between. So I figured that I probably flattened out a lot of that accent. There but you go. Yeah, people still hear it. <laughs> it comes out every once in a while. Yeah, right? Proud to be a Jersey girl. <laughs> yeah. Yes, exactly. So, um, so I've already given a brief bio on you in the introduction, but for, for listeners who are not yet familiar with your work, could you please tell us a little bit about your origin story? You know, who is Brenda Tharp and how did you get started in photography? 
Well, I have my dad to blame or to thank, depending on how you look <laughs> at it. But actually, it is to thank and my family in general. Um, when I was growing up, we were very active outdoors. We did a lot of hiking and camping and traveling by car and then camping to pretty much the eastern seaboard. So a lot of the east coast, as far west as Ohio, up and down uh, during summer vacations and long weekends. And dad was the documentary photographer of the family. So he was responsible for us having fun and doing the family portraits out by Niagara Falls and so forth. And Mm -hmm. he was also interested in photography beyond that. And he was interested in nature in general and how things worked. And so his interest and using the camera to record some of that um, piqued my interest at an early age. And I remember that when I was probably, I don't know, eight or nine years old. So that's going way back. Um, brownie cameras were the thing. And I was given a brownie camera and I used to take pictures of nature all around our, our house. We had a two acre piece of property just about two acres and most of it was wooded. And so I would go and take pictures in the woods and take pictures of the flowers and nature. And then I'd make my younger sister go sit on a rock. So I had a person (laughs) in the picture, you know, because you have to have people now and then. And, And so I was kind of just mimicking, you know, because he was interested in it. I kind of got interested. But then it really stayed with me. And when I got old enough where he gave me his hand-me-down cameras, it was always a good excuse to get a new one for him. Oh, well, I'll sure. give Brenda this, you know? Right. <laughs> and he could justify it. And he actually had built the house with a dark room in it, but then he never finished the plumbing part of it, and he never huh. actually used it. It was in his intent to really get into photography, but he was also raising a family of four girls, God bless them. And yeah. he was working full time and he was putting himself through school, engineering school at night. So the guy, wow. plus he had to mow the lawn and do all those things. So he sure. never really yeah. had time to get into the actual development process, but the dark room was there. And when he saw that I was interested, he taught me how to develop film and how oh, to wow. print. And so that was a bond that we shared all through my formative years, you know, and into high school. And I spent hours in the dark room and skipped meals and everything just because it was magical in there. And then we took a couple of classes. They were the continuing ed classes. um, And it was how to photograph macro, how to make a slide duplicating box, how to publish a book, you know, Mm, anything. That's great. And it was really, really cool. Yeah. So that, that, is really how I got into it. And then while I was in late high school and early college, I started, I was photographing nature a lot and I started putting my work into some competitions and seeing about maybe having an exhibit. And it was really fun. I won first place in the I think it was like the Northern New Jersey League of Conservation Scientists. It was the longest membership (laughs) title I could ever knew, you know, and and it was it was first place and it was morning doves feeding their young. And and what I went to 
through to get that shot was cool because I had to lay on my stomach for four and a half hours with my camera and flash at the ready at, wow. the, at the elevation of the nest. So long story short, you know, I had worked out a way to do that and I just lay still so the birds would trust and come back. But that wow. reward was for that effort, which was cool. And all those yeah. things just kind of, they're the carrot, you know, it's like, oh, I won that award. Well, let me enter this contest and that contest. Right. And then yeah. I had an exhibit, my very first exhibit in um, the Great Swamp National Wildlife Refuge. I think it's national. <laughs> I should remember yeah. that, but it was the Great Swamp and they had a nature center and I had an exhibit there. And there was somebody from a regional paper that came and reviewed the show. Oh, my God. Wow. You know, yes. <laughs> I didn't know that was going to happen, but it was all positive. Yeah. And and so that that was it. But that's amazing. Dad never believed in it as a career. So it, for for you or for him, uh, probably for him either. Otherwise, I think he might have yeah. actually he was not a big risk taker. So he he had a lot of dreams, but but they were hobby things. He just yeah. couldn't take the risk of leaving that job that he had and had for 41 years before he retired. And so when I wanted to pursue photography, it was clear to me that it was just a hobby. Same thing mm, with mm -hmm. guitar playing. I was going to be another Joan Baez or someone like that, <laughs> Peter, Paul, and Mary. And I was self-taught in the guitar, but I had near-perfect pitch. So I had wow. a good voice back then, and I was playing in some local folk groups and church services and things like that. And I thought, I, this is what I'm going to pursue. Dad was yeah. like, nah, 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 you're going to college <laughs> and you're going to get a degree so that after you get married and you have kids, you have a good job <laughs> to go back to because you've got a degree. He had it all mapped yeah. out. Well, yeah, yeah. I kind of broke the mold. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I did get my degree, but not the way he had planned, you know, so. So did you get it in photography then no. or not? No. Um, I started out, well, he went to night school and that was the other thing I kind of mimicked my dad and I went to community college first, didn't really know what I wanted to major in and I wasn't going to go away to school until I had a sense of it. So I went to the local community yeah. college for just a bachelor of arts or with humanities. Yep. Um, and then I started working a summer job for Hewlett Packard and the taste of money was sweet. And <laughs> I, at the end of that summer, I thought, I don't really know what I'm doing in college right now. I don't know what I'm going for. So I decided to continue my education, but I switched it into night school and I stayed working. So yeah. at that point, I was going, I thought I was going to be a teacher. Mm -hmm. And I started taking education classes and psychology and all the things that you needed for that. But I was starting to get further along in the job. And my boss kept saying, you should really go into programming. You're not going to make any money in teaching and programming is where it's at. And this is like ancient history here, but we were at that time just really starting to get into personal computer development and 
transmitting orders from one plant all the way across the country to another via mag tape systems and, you know, everything. And so it was really fascinating. It was interesting. And he convinced me that I might do better in a computer science degree. So I switched. And of course, that just meant I had to sort of start over and delay the whole process. But but I did that. And I got my degree ultimately in computer science. Gotcha. Yeah. Wow. And people say, wow, you didn't do any photography during that? I did. Every chance I had, I was photographing because my heart really wanted the arts. Yeah. But my dad's practical thinking and the upbringing, and he had a good, strong German work ethic, and he never... He never slapped the ruler at us like, you will go to school, you know, but it was there. It was very, very strong. And so I was trying to fit that mold and do what I thought he thought was an appropriate path. Yeah. 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 It's hard. I I have a, my background's in science uh, as well. And so I also had a non-traditional path to photography. Um, Going, going the traditional route through, you know, college and graduate school and all of that until I finally got to a point where I was like, I just feel like I need to be following this passion more. Um, Good for you. Yeah. 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 Thank you. But thank it takes you. a lot so, because we're having to break that, that expectation that family and or friends, the sphere of influence that we grow up in, we, right. we have to break out of that. And that takes a, a lot of courage, really, more than I think we realized when we were doing it. But looking back, yeah. you realize, wow, that was kind of a big step. Right. Yeah. So um, it sounds like your your passion has been photography since the very beginning. How about your love of the outdoors? Is that something that developed through your photography or did you already also have a connection to the outdoors as well? I also had a connection to the outdoors originally. And and as I had mentioned, we used to go camping and traveling and we did everything. I mean, we couldn't afford to stay in hotels. So it was the big army tent and dad would yeah. throw it all into the Ford station wagon and pile us all in there. And we'd drive 13 hours to get to our campsite. But once we were there, we would spend a week camping, playing in the streams and and playing in the lakes and and sightseeing out from the campground, you know, going out in a radial pattern to all the things that were there to see. And that meant hiking. We would hike uh, a lot of the Appalachian Trail. We hiked bits and pieces of it as a family. Nice. And we explored caves. Oh, my gosh. When we went to Mammoth Cave in Kentucky, I was, blo- I think it's Kentucky. It's terrible not to remember these things now, but I was blown away by that, that massive cave, you know? And, and so he introduced us to a lot of really cool things in nature that way. And yeah. and that's where my passion for the outdoors really, really started. And then I just kept hiking with friends and camping and backpacking with my dad for a number of years. Um but I also have an interest in, it's kind of funny, it's hard from a marketing point of view, perhaps, but, you know, they say you should position yourself as a landscape photographer or as a food or a travel photographer. And and I found that I was really fascinated with a lot of things. I love to travel and I love experiencing other cultures. So travel photography was also part of it for me. 
mm-hmm. my passion, my root really lies with the outdoors. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, still I can there. see that. Yeah. I can see that in your work. Thanks. Yeah. So I've really enjoyed reading two of your books, uh, Creative Nature and Outdoor Photography and Expressive Nature Photography. Um, and, and in both of these books, you talk extensively about creativity and composition. And I definitely recommend to the readers that they check out these books if they haven't already. And I'll put links in the show notes to these things. But I was hoping that you would share a little bit about your creative process. You know, where do you get your inspiration from? And how do you approach composition when you're drawn to a certain scene or subject? Okay, great. I think first and foremost, the the inspiration comes from my love for nature and the love for being outdoors and the fresh air and and just experiencing nature. So by going out, even if I have a plan for going someplace specific to make photographs, it's really the experience once I'm there that will drive the photographs that I ultimately make. Mm-hmm. So many times we'll say, oh, well, we're going to go to Zabriskie Point to get that sunrise picture, you know, and and that's a plan and that's fine. But I like to go with as much openness, open-mindedness as I can to what else might be there or what else might be wanting to happen on the way there. <laughs> right. So yeah. that I take advantage of the moment of the light, the conditions and so forth. Um, so inspiration really comes from just being immersed in nature. We have so much to learn from nature, the stories that are out there. And I look for that. I look for, uh, scenes and, uh, whether they're intimate or grand landscapes or macro, I look for things that tell a story about how fascinating or how beautiful how interesting nature is. And, and then I try to compose a picture that will express that. And as far as composition goes, you know, many of us, if we've studied, and in fact, even in my books, I talk about a rule of thirds as a guideline, but you know, we grew up with this rule of thirds, rule of thirds, and you've got the golden triangle and the tic-tac-toe and those different points where that's the place of most impact, you know. But if you stick to that rule, your pictures can become very predictable Mm -hmm. and stilted. And I judge a lot for camera clubs. And I'm often uh, stuck with having to work within those rules that they run by. And Mm -hmm. that rule of thirds is a big thing. And I see so many pictures where the leaf is just perfectly placed in that intersecting lower right corner, you know, and I get it. Those rules were developed because it, the asymmetry of it felt right. It was pleasing to our brains historically back when painters started composing their pictures but I like to also stay open-minded and flexible with that and not be so yeah. scientific about nailing it on that intersecting point. I might be close, but we have four of those points. Count them, four. <laughs> yeah. um, and which of them is going to be the best for any given scene depends on what your elements are. What are you including right. in the frame, right? Right. So if you're big 
redwood tree is the is the subject and it's massive and visually heavy, you're probably not going to want to put it in the upper left intersecting corner. You're going to lean it more towards the bottom because it helps compositionally not create a, a negative tension. And right. the eye is going to come into the picture and be drawn to the tree. So you have to think about what am I bringing the viewer over to get to the tree? Right. Um, what's of interest there? And if I have them come into the picture and they hit the tree right away, then what's the rest of my picture doing? And how is that supporting the tree? If it's right. sort of abstract as I'm discussing that, but you know, you can't just place something because it's fitting on the grid. You have to think about all of the other elements that are within your viewfinder and anything that isn't supporting your subject should be considered out of the frame because it's taken right. away from the impact. So it's got to all just tie together. Does that make sense? Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it has to do also with what is your intent of taking the photo, right? So are you trying, like, what's the um, emotion perhaps that you're trying to elicit in the viewer in the viewer and that can inform where you're going to put your subject in the frame absolutely uh, as well you know and that may uh even be in the center of the frame yeah you know, god, yeah god forbid you put it there <laughs> exactly <laughs> <You know? laughs> exactly in fact i was listening to uh a talk that Sarah Marino did, and she's really strong in her opinion about not following those rules. And you put it where it makes sense within right. your frame. And I am such a proponent of that. And it was like, yeah. yay, you know, kindred yes. spirits, because <laughs> we've all too often just tried to stick within the rules. And Photography is about creative expression, and, right. and maybe pushing that envelope a little bit is what creates a more dynamic image. And if yeah. symmetry is what the picture is all about, then centering it probably makes the most sense, or right. even just close to centering it. So it's not quite, you know, bullseye, but it still feels best being centered. Yeah. And what's wrong yeah, with totally that? <laughs> exactly. No, I totally agree. I feel like there's a lot out there about, you know, learn the rules of photography and then break the rules. And what I don't like about that is that I feel like it communicates this idea that if you're following the rules, you're not a creative person. Right. And I don't think that's true either. Right. I think it's that the rules are there because historically they, they are producing visually pleasing effects but they may not always be applicable to what it is that we're trying to do with the photograph that we're making. And so we have to know what they are in order to choose the right one or stretch it so that we're still somehow communicating the point effectively without necessarily following this specific rule or that specific rule. But knowing that if I put the big, heavy, you know, sequoia tree in the lower right of the frame, that's going to ground that better than if I put it in the upper left corner of the frame, like exactly. understanding that kind of a relationship, unless you want it to have that really imbalanced feel. And if that's the point, you know, say it's at a diagonal and it's falling down, then you might want it on the left hand side of yeah, the frame because exactly. that's going to. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I totally 
um, agree with what you're saying. Yeah, it's got to be a consideration of everything else that's in there and how you're, it's really visual flow. That's how I look at composition. It's how you are moving the viewer through your frame. And, and that, another thing, in Western cultures, we tend to read from, we enter a page from top left and we read to the right drop down to back the next line, but we're basically going top to bottom, left to right across the page as we read. And and if you compare that to how we enter picture space, a very comfortable and somewhat predictable composition is to have your subject in the right side of the frame and we enter the left and we and we make our way over to it, maybe down as well. So I see a lot of things ending up in that lower right corner or quadrant. And I think it's because it is the comfortable way we're used to reading a magazine page or anything, uh, for that matter, <clears throat> in Western cultures. Years ago, I when I got involved with stock agencies, I was looking at Asian stock agency catalogs very different compositions because huh. they read and enter the page space differently. So and interesting. It was interesting. And we realized, several of us realized that if we wanted our work to be very marketable in the, in the Asian markets um, or anywhere that read differently than we did, then we might want to consider making compositions that are different. Boy, that was difficult for us, but Trying bet, to at yeah. least think about that. And then within just a few years, we realized that the Asian market was using a lot of Western pictures because they were using Western advertising anyway. Right. <laughs> so <laughs> in the end, it really didn't matter all that much, but, yeah. but it was a good visual exercise. So coming in, to get back to my thought here, is that visual flow, if we're coming in from the top left and flowing down to the right, that's very comfortable. Well, some of the most exciting pictures are ones that force us to come from the bottom of the frame. Think about the super wide angle that a lot right. is very popular right now, where you're in there with your 11 to 22 millimeter, you know, and you're you're drawing us using the vanishing point perspective. You're just drawing us back to the distance, but you're drawing us over visually interesting stuff, you know, tide yeah. pools and rock formations, whatever have you. And that is an exciting picture because it's forcing us to come into the picture space in a different way than our brains are used to. And so that's stimulating to the brain. Mm -hmm. And and that's a good thing, you know, we, we right. need more of that. And so some of the most successful and dynamic compositions are ones that do upset that rule, if you will, and, yeah. and try to play with the elements in the frame to to force the viewer to come in and travel in a way that is different for them. Yeah. Yeah. And that again, back to that left to right reading, you know, if you have a, a strong diagonal going from the upper left to the lower right that might give a sense of falling. Whereas if it's going from the lower left to the upper right, then it's like a sense of climbing. And, you know, it's so interesting that all it is is a diagonal line, but it has such a different feeling to the image. Um, and just like you were saying, like if you have a strong foreground element at the bottom of the frame leading you into the image, that's much more pleasing than 
you know, you wouldn't really necessarily having a leading line from the coming from the top of the frame. Right. That would feel weird somehow. Yeah. yeah. You, if you would feel squished probably yeah. within the frame, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah. 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 It's really interesting how all this, how our brains make sense of all this information. So that goes to one of my questions uh, in your book, Expressive Nature Photography, you, when you talk about visual flow in that book, which we kind of already did, you also talk about using elements of design to express the photographer's intent. So could you talk a little bit about what that is and how does that uh, play into composition? Sure. A long ways back, <laughs> um, elements of design really began with um, the first artists and architects, and they were taking that inspiration from nature, but angles, shapes, textures, and patterns were all a strong group of elements that could be um, applied, I guess, for the, I'm just trying to come up with the word, it could be applied to painting or to building things and ultimately to photography. So most of the man-made shapes and textures and patterns are imitations of nature. And a long, long time ago, when I was falling in love with nature, I was noticing the texture on a pile of leaves that had fallen on the ground because the low angle of the sun was raking across the tops. And, you know, subliminally, I wasn't standing there going, oh, wow, look at that texture. I didn't really have any definition for it at that point, but I remembered it was pleasing because of the way the light skimmed it. And the same thing on tree bark, you know, you could feel the roughness of the tree bark if the light was at an angle that skimmed that surface. And I found that just quite naturally, I was drawn to a lot of those design elements that were in nature. So textures and patterns, in particular patterns, were a thing for me. I loved that repetition. And mm -hmm. I discovered that if I filled the frame with the repetition of a pattern so that it actually spilled off the edges of the frame, that that led the mind's eye to think there's more to it than I could mm -hmm. fit within the box of that viewfinder or the slide or, you know, whatever, the print. And that increased the overall visual strength of the pattern because it continued. And I remember doing experiments where if I had a pattern and I pulled back on it enough that I had space all around the edges, so the pattern started and stopped within my frame, that picture wasn't nearly as exciting as the one where it just spilled in all directions out of the edges. So yeah. the, the mind's eye completed it and made it larger than life in that sense. Yeah, and it, it, it might have been a small pattern, but you make it feel larger because you've now cut it off at the edges and your mind says, wow, there's more to this. Right. So that that was really sort of a cool discovery. And then I also discovered that it was really fun if you had pattern with something that might break it up. So it might be mm -hmm. a pattern of tree bark and a moth had landed on the bark. You know, that that element that gave your eye a place to rest mm -hmm. while the sea of pattern was going on all around it was really cool. And pattern as itself is is great and it's really strong, 
but it can almost become uh, dizzying and rip and it's so repetitive and you're stuck within the frame just going around and around and around, you know, right. that if you can create a pattern shot with something that breaks that, the eye has a place to sort of anchor and rest a little bit before it jumps back into the movement around all over the pattern. So yeah. these were things that I kind of just, they were evolving for me on my own. And then in 1989, I think it was, I read a book by Brian Peterson, mm -hmm. and it was called Learning to See Creatively. And as I was reading it, he's talking about patterns and textures and shapes and oh my you know it's like <laughs> i should have written this book of course i didn't have the wherewithal back then i didn't have the confidence and and me write a book that was the farthest right. thing from my mind but there it yeah. was everything that i was thinking and applying was written and and that was an affirmation for me that if somebody else is thinking this enough that they published a book about it we're on to something. Right. Yeah. And then there was another book, Michael Freeman, and who knows who came first in all of this, but Michael Freeman, who is, I believe, Canadian, um, he had one called The Photographer's Eye. And I mm -hmm. bought that book, and it, too, had all this information about design. And it was a little bit drier read than Brian's book, but it was so informative. And it kind yeah. of became the structure by how I approached a lot of my photography. And so that's that's really where the design sort of started happening and mm -hmm. how I feel that if you incorporate the elements that are already there, that your pictures can become stronger. So yeah. let's say you have an ocean, a coastal scene where there's these ribs of stones that are just running out to sea, ledges, if you will. You know, those are lines that are just pulling you from where you're standing towards infinity on the horizon. And if you make use of those lines well in your composition, then that design element not only is the line moving us from the bottom of the frame towards the top, towards the background, but it's also repetitive if there's more than one line. So you might have line and pattern combined. How exciting is that? Right. <laughs> and I know your viewers, your listeners, I should say, yeah. can't yeah. see me. It's probably a good thing because you're getting to see me and I talk with my hands, but I'm very expressive. <laughs> So maybe they can feel that in my voice that I'm, I'm sure talking they like crazy with my hands. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> so, so on that subject of, of seeing, you know, you talk about uh, learning how to see, learning to see in creative nature and outdoor photography and the expressive image. And so, you know, how, how do you help your students do that? You know, we've got this chaotic world in front of us, all this input coming in. How do you sort of start to sift through the chaos to start to see these visual elements. Do you have any tips on that? One thing I think is really important is to get in touch with what's exciting you. If you're walking down a path and something makes you stop and you say, oh, that's interesting. Well, what is it? And, and it's important to articulate it either verbally or at least mentally, ask yourself, well, what made me stop? Oh, well, it was that pattern over there. 
I really like that. Or it was the the lines of trees receding into the distance, you know, whatever it was that made you stop and take notice is really what you should focus on, no pun intended. Mm-hmm. You know, that becomes the core of what you found exciting in that moment in that spot. And then you go to work on it. How can I bring that out? It was the repetitive lines of those trees that I really liked. So now I have to think about where I'm going to position myself to express that, how much I'm going to include in the frame that will help express that. uh, What do I not want in the frame so that it's not distracting me away from the very thing that made me stop in my tracks to begin with? Mm-hmm. And one of the things that when I teach workshops, and I, I don't teach as many basic classes now, but I still use this idea. Um, we used to have, you know, slides, and you'd poke the, the film out, and you'd have this little frame. And I used to have people, I used to hand them out and say, okay, this is your viewing box. And so you can put it up to your eye, and if you put it right up to your eye, it's basically normal 46 or maybe even wider view, depending on your vision. And as you move it out, it starts to become a more telephoto isolating frame, Mm -hmm. okay? And so what's within it, as you move it out, it helps you see more clearly what you'd like to include and not include. Now, oh, sure. So like a like a composition card. Yeah, but it was problematic okay. because the 35 millimeter slide, once you got it out, maybe six inches away from your eye, you had all the external clutter getting in there still. So right. then um, I started, I made a five by seven mat board with a bigger two to three slide ratio cutout in there. And I gave those out to use. And and that was better. They were a little bulky to take with you in your camera bag, but they helped isolate and block out. So that was a composition card, I guess, is what you're referring to. Yeah, yeah. I've I started using that too for similar reasons. Uh, so I I usually have you know one that has like a four by six cutout in the middle because mm-hmm. it's a three by two ratio, right. and then it's just a couple of inches around the edge of that. It's just cardboard. And, you know, with tape on it, so it stays a little bit more sturdy. Of course, it's not like waterproof or anything. Like right, that. right. But I and it is cumbersome. But I do find it so helpful to kind of, you know, block out the other stuff. And you can just start to see these little compositions here and there that might not be the whole big scene. Exactly. Um, yeah. And it's an easy way to to pick out distractions as well. You know, often I'll be photographing a stream or something. And it's not until I get home where I'm like, oh, that there's a huge dead branch, right? Where it's like a terrible place for it, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Never and happened I, to me. Yeah. <laughs> I wish. <laughs> yeah. You know, and sometimes when you're so excited about photographing the the thing, the the elements or whatever, or, or how to compose it well, and and sometimes you can be blind to those distractions until you're analyzing the image when you get home. And I find that that card, that whatever frame helps a lot with identifying them in the field. It does. And it it actually forces you to slow down also because of the whole bit of pulling it out and walking around and you using it and moving it in and out and kind of, you know, isolating. But when you see something and it's it's like an aha moment, you know, because all of the sudden with the rest of the world shut out visually, 
you see something that you might not have seen in the bigger scene. And it's really great for uh, intimate landscapes and macro in particular, because mm-hmm. you you are faced with this giant scene in front of you, this giant landscape, even in the forest. It's a big landscape and it's chaotic, as you say. And how are you going to see that wonderful, intimate scene without blocking some of the rest out? And I think with practice, and you probably know this, over time, you develop an ability to have what what a friend of mine used to call binocuvision. <laughs> and and so you you manage to do it without the card after a while. Yeah. But it's a great tool to not only for beginners that are trying to learn how to see some and distill the chaos of the big scene into something more intimate. Um, but it also is it, it can be useful for the big landscape too, because mm-hmm. it just kind of you move it around and you kind of get a feeling for how everything's going to come in to the frame the way you want it. So it's yeah. it's worth it for people to have one and to it slows them down to where they're not just rushing around making compositions that and you see the branch. <laughs> you talked about the branch in the stream and I yeah. think that that also helps sometimes because it's now right there. But another tip that works has worked for me for years, and I, I teach people this all the time. <clears throat> so you've gotten all excited. You've seen your scene, and maybe you've used the card or not, but you've got a composition you're really happy with, and you've figured out what aperture and shutter you want and so forth. Before I press the shutter, I ask myself, Brenda, is there mm-hmm. anything in this frame that you don't want or you don't like? And that simple question is often enough to have me suddenly notice that gosh darn branch. Yeah. Or where did that grass blade come from? I didn't yep. see that. And it's because we are we're we're having to use both left and right brain. And the yeah. right brain is like, ooh, ooh, look at that. Isn't that exciting? <laughs> this is really beautiful. Oh, you know. And then we jump into the left brain for a little bit because we say, okay, I've got to use F8 and I need to be at a 30th of a second or whatever. And so we use the left brain and we get some of the technical stuff set up. Oh, do I need a polarizer? Yes. You know, uh, grad neutral density. Yes. And then you get all done and... By then, you've forgotten what you were excited about, possibly. You know, <laughs> I mean, it, it happens. <laughs> Trust me, I know these things. But, you know, you get to that point where you've momentarily separated from that. Oh, this is so beautiful. I'm so excited. And so by asking the question about um, what excites me and is there anything in the frame that I don't want, that t- gives me a moment to step back from the technical and even from the emotional, but step back, look at it, make sure that everything is clean. And then I try to say, now, does it express what I initially wanted to express? Now, you can't always take, it sounds like, oh my God, that's going to take like two hours and the light will have changed and the 
the frog has jumped off or whatever, but, right, but it doesn't yeah. take that long. You know, it's just that it's the process and you develop sort of a, 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 a way of working so that it becomes more intuitive. So you won't probably hear me out there going out loud. Okay, Brenda, what don't you like about this? Well, you might, because I do talk to myself a fair amount, but usually it's internalized and and I'm asking myself those few questions, okay, and and checking back in with the right side of the brain to make sure that in all of the technical preparation, I haven't lost the excitement that I initially right. had and yeah. missed the point in the picture. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because sometimes those technical things you know, parts of it like aperture, depth of field, and those types of things can certainly change the feeling of the picture, right? You use those as a technique to express what you're trying to express. And so if it's not capturing it, then you need to go back to the technique, readjust, see if you can refine it from there. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, that's what's so beautiful about digital is, especially with shutter speed, you know, if, if we're trying to capture just the right amount of movement in the wind or the water, we can see the result and say, nope, nope, got to go a little faster, got to go a little slower. There's a a stained glass effect on water that I've always loved when there's a really beautiful reflection and there's a certain rippling that happens that creates these little, you know, if they were frozen in time, they might even be polygons, I'm not sure, but they're just this wonderful pattern. And it requires just the right shutter speed to freeze that and yet have it look ripply. Yeah, and I know what you're talking about. Yeah. I've been trying to get that for a long time. I'm still still not convinced I well, can do it. <laughs> it's a it's a hit and miss thing. And part of the reason for that is that it does depend on the focal length. So, you know, motion happens faster in a, in a longer focal length than it does in a wider focal length. So your, your 30th of a second at, you know, let's say 40 millimeters may need to be a 60th if you're at 85 millimeters in order to freeze that motion and get that same effect. And of course, it's all different. Nature moves the water around differently every time. So, right. but with and digital, we can at least tell whether we've got it and we right. don't leave <laughs> until we feel like we've nailed it. So I love right. that about, yes. you know, yeah. Yeah. Big change. Yeah, for sure. So light, let's talk about light a little bit, because obviously that's a huge factor in photography. And so, you know, learning how to see light and how to see tonal contrast, that can be hard for some people who are just starting out and how to start to identify the the quality of the light and the characteristics it has on the subject. So do you have any tips for people who are struggling with that, how to start to train your eye to see light a certain way? Oh, that's like a podcast in itself, isn't it? <laughs> uh, let's see if I can distill it down. Well, and, and I know some of it seems like tedium, but uh, studying light in photographs and paintings is a really good way to get familiar with where the light was coming from. See if you can figure out the direction of the light when you're looking at a photograph that you like. Mm-hmm. And that's one way of just doing research through looking through books and magazines and online. Um, and um, also just understanding the angle of light and what it will do for different things. So that side light brings out a lot of texture if it's at right angles or even 45 degree angle to your subject surface. 
you know, understanding that can help you see it in the field. So you might be seeing side light and you might be turned on by a texture, but if you're not really paying attention to why that texture is showing like it is, then you're not really learning about the light. You're not realizing and making the connection that the light is what caused that texture to show up in the first place. That right. under and, overcast. And sorry. No, it's okay. I was going to say, and your relationship, your direction, your your relationship to the direction of light. Exactly. You yeah. know, also is important with that. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it takes, it really takes sort of a little bit of classroom learning, if you will, to read about the qualities of light, the harshness and the diffusion and, and what that does, as well as what the direction of light can do. But it doesn't require a semester course in it. It just requires reading up on it and understanding some of the basics of light, and then taking that into the field, literally. So maybe it's a tree near you, uh, and it's a tree that you can walk around, or some object that you can walk around, so that on any given condition of light or, or direction of light, you can move around your object and you can see what the effect is. You can you can get to a position where the, the object is now side lit. And what does it look like side lit? What are the attributes that are showing? And a tree is a great object because it's got, it's going to have texture. And so you're going to see that texture show up when the light is now side lit to your tree, the way you're facing it. Mm -hmm. um, you're going to see that it's a total silhouette when the light is behind it, you know. So an object like that makes more sense than if you picked a square metal cube because there's no surface texture really to right. pick up on some of the, the, the nuances of light. Yeah, um, that makes sense. And to different times of day and to visit that same tree under full sun and under diffused cloud cover or rainy days to begin to understand the quality of light and what that does for a subject. You know, the, the sunlight, we love sunlight, but anything that's been developed for, you know, whether it's film or digital, which was patterned after film, has really not had the ability to catch the full range of contrast that we can see with our eyes. So hmm. we look outside on a sunny day and we say, wow, this looks great. <clears throat> and you make a picture of that and it's contrasty and maybe not so pretty. So, Interesting, because the dynamic range of our eyes is greater. Yes, much greater. Yeah. yeah. So we need to remind ourselves of that and recognize that since the camera isn't seeing as big a range of light, that maybe that full sunny condition is not really appropriate for the subject that we want to photograph. That yeah. maybe a little bit softer light which might be when it's earlier or later in the day and it's traveling through the atmosphere more, so it's somewhat diffused, um, or the angle of the light and the direction of it and how it's striking your subject will improve that picture um, under even you know full sun conditions by simply moving around or having it be at a different angle can make such a difference. And yeah. a lot of people, in especially beginning, they say, well, it was an overcast day, it was cloudy, and I really wasn't inspired, and I just couldn't see anything. 
And yeah, I get it because we respond to the sunlit scene and we go, wow, this is lovely, right. you know? <laughs> and then we get the picture back and we're like, this is ugly. This didn't turn out at all what I thought it was right. going to be. So under diffuse light conditions, we see so much more in the camera and it is a different energy to the light for sure. But so many things in nature are better photographed in softer light than they yeah. are in full sun. And the big scene is is fine in full sun, but of course with some color or some angle to it and so forth, that makes that more exciting. Yeah. Um, so it's just really practice, practice, practice. Yeah. And, and, and being mindful, just say, I am going to go out and learn about light this month. So everything I do, I am going to pay attention to what the light is doing and revisit that same scene under different light conditions and, and understand what's good and bad for that particular situation. Yeah. And, and I yeah. think that's, that's really just the, the way to start. Yeah, a very good, good advice for sure. I mean, I think it does take time. It takes study and... um and it, it might feel boring to do it that way, except that you'll learn so much in the process and you'll have a little body of work of a little portfolio of this one tree and all different types of light. And That's so, right. <laughs> yeah. And, and, you know, we all want to skip to the finish line, right? And yeah. so digital was instant gratification. And that was like, wow, this is really awesome. Now I can, I don't have to shoot 36 frames on the subject because I know I got it. You know, right. so I can see it. <laughs> um, and you can leave and go on and make another cool picture. But but we can't have that. I mean, you know, you didn't you don't just sit down and play Mozart, right? Right. You, you go yeah. through practice and practice. Even gifted people have to practice. They have to know? play their scales. That's right. And so, <laughs> yeah. you know, like it or not, it really comes down to that. If you're really serious about making the best image you images you can, then you need to just knuckle down and, and get some of those basics under your belt. And so they become intuitive. And then you just start really seeing the possibilities. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Thank you for that. So this is obviously a podcast focused on outdoor photography. Um, and I've been impressed, though, by the diversity in your images. It seems like you photograph pretty much everything, even though you have an emphasis in landscape and nature photography. So for photographers who want to improve their technical and compositional skills, would you recommend practicing with other forms of photography or instead more niching down and really focusing just on one genre that they're trying to get better at? Well, mm, good question. I think ultimately you'll be more inspired to do the tedium of learning and the basics and how to get better at seeing the light and composing and so forth if you're really interested in your subject matter. So I mm -hmm. would recommend mm -hmm. really staying sort of in the genre of your main interest. I happen to be one of those people that really... I'm in love with life and I know that might sound corny but mm -hmm. I am. I find I find so many things are interesting and what I love is light and form and shape and texture and pattern and whatever those do to whatever subject that's in front of me may make me want to photograph that. So when my partner and I wrote 
we produced the book Extraordinary Everyday Photography, it was clearly about subjects that were not nature. It was leaves on the sidewalk. It was the shadow on the side of a silo, you know, whatever. And it was because he feels the same way. We are drawn to things because of the light and because of the design elements and because of the juxtapositions that we see. And it it's irrelevant in some ways as to what the subject is. Mm, We're just mm-hmm. wanting to celebrate what we see around us every day. Yeah. And I and I think that that well, I know it stems from wanting to celebrate life in general, wanting mm-hmm. to just celebrate being alive and celebrate what's in my world and doing it with the camera. Um yeah. Sam Abel from National Geographic, uh, he was there for many, many years. And he's a poet with a camera. He talks about making the moment stay. And that's the, I think his book title is Stay This Moment. Hmm. And we use our cameras to capture moments, even if they're quiet, stationary moments. The minute we press that shutter, we are making that moment in time stay in the resulting picture. And that's really why I photograph other things as well, because Mm -hmm. I look at something, it catches my eye, and by photographing it, I've just made that moment stay forever in time. Well, you have such a remarkable talent for it. I mean, you you bring out the extraordinary and the ordinary, and, and you're like, you know, observing things that most people would just walk past, and you're able to capture that compositionally in a beautiful way. And so it is it is really just amazing how how you are able to do that just across different types of photography. Thanks. You know, and I I do think one thing getting back to that idea about whether you should focus on your own genre and niche. um, I think it doesn't hurt at all to photograph outside of your comfort zone, and what you're really passionate about. Um, if you're inclined to do that. And when my training in photography was, I'm self-taught, but I did take workshops in photojournalism. I studied under the National Geographic photography staff. I did a lot of things as a, to teach me to be a photojournalist. Mm-hmm. And those skill sets about learning how to tell a story using my camera and how to capture moments, because that's what photojournalism is often about. It's that moment the football's caught, or the moment the bear catches the salmon, you know, whatever it is, it's a moment. And those skills translated into what I do photographically in nature. Because for wildlife, I need to have my timing down, which means I need to learn observation skills. So I mm-hmm. can get really good at knowing when the moment's about to happen and be ready for it. And that's not different from being a sports photographer or a, a photojournalist of any sort when you're trying to do something that has action involved. Yeah. And 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 so and and paying attention to the foreground and the background and not having elements merge so that you don't have the antler from the deer attached to the tree trunk, you know, or, or you don't have antlers growing out of someone's head or, you know, those (laughs) kinds of things. So it it really can be very useful to, to take what you know from what you love to do and apply it to other things. 
because I think it rounds you out and it just mm-hmm. improves the skill set. And as yeah. a magazine photographer, I needed to have that. I needed to be able to shoot the food and do a portrait of the people that made the food and do a landscape all in the same story, you know? Yeah. So yeah. it's um, a lot of different skills, you know, yes. lighting and, yeah. and so all of that. Yeah. So it laid out to be good for me. But you don't need to. You could become an expert at all of that within one genre. And we see that happen with some of the best wildlife photographers and the best landscape photographers out there that have just stuck to that. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, I think it like comes back to what you were saying is what motivates you and you're motivated by life, right? That's a huge category. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it you is. Know, <laughs> you know, and, uh, and, and so it makes sense that that would be inspiring to you to photograph in all of these different types of opportunities, whereas somebody who is really just motivated about wildlife or night sky photography or whatever it is, they're going to learn the skills probably more efficiently and more robustly if they're sticking to what they're passionate about creating. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. 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 And, you know, the whole, the classic phrase of a jack of all trades, master of nothing. I, I remember fighting up against that to some degree because magazines really wanted you to be the photographer or the writer. Most of them didn't want you to be both. They didn't think you could do both. So that was a challenge. And then when you were trying to market yourself to the editorial world, they needed to they th- th- to pigeonhole you. Oh, mm. Brenda's really good at macro or Brenda's really good for look at all her wildlife photographs. Okay, so we're going to call her when we have a wildlife story or one that has a lot of wildlife in it. You know, um, we're going to call so-and-so for something else. And so it was challenging to position myself from a marketing point of view because people really wanted to pigeonhole you and, you know, but somehow I made it. I made it through all of that and here I am. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, shifting gears just a little bit. So, so like you, I'm a member of the Nature First Photography Alliance. And one of the core values that I try to convey through Outdoor Photography School is the importance of respecting and connecting with nature and not just seeing it as a resource for consumption. So I was wondering if you could share your thoughts and perspective on the importance of uh, ethical photography or being ethical when photographing nature. Like, what does that mean? And what does that look like in practice out in the field or once we're sharing our images later? Yeah, indeed. It is so important more than ever, because with Instagram, with social media platforms in general, we've had instances where fields of flowers have been trampled and the edges of streams, the riparian zones have been flattened down to bare packed earth because people have just flocked out there to get that beautiful waterfall picture without a real connection to it other than to post it on social media or post a picture of themselves in front of that waterfall. And and I don't want to downplay all of that. I think the sharing and the celebrating of the beauty is is really important, but we need to take care of our earth better as we use it for our photographs. And so for me, it's paying very close attention when I go out into the field that I am not contributing to the impact 
of that environment by making photographs. And it's easy to say, oh, well, it's already packed earth anyway, so what's it going to hurt if I go stand there? Mm-hmm. But I try to be very mindful of the fact that I need to set an example and step back and find an area that is not heavily impacted. And if it's possible to step between the plants to get to where I want to be for my Mm -hmm. composition, especially if there's a lot of people around me photographing as well, you know, um, or if I'm leading a workshop, you know, I'm not going to take them to an area that's already heavily impacted and and trashed and and mm-hmm. if if we go near that or if we don't go i'll say it's been heavily impacted we need to let it rest you know yeah. and yeah. we're going to go elsewhere and find photographs that are individual and you know beautiful and unique and and i think that's also good um when people say well does that mean that you won't step into a wildflower meadow and the answer is that it depends. I will carefully step into a wildflower meadow if there are spaces where I can step between and minimize my impact because, let's face it, an elk walking through the meadow is going to trample a certain amount. And so my human footprints will, to some degree, be like an elk moving through that meadow. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to say, okay, gang, let's go and spread out and all 12 of us stomp through that meadow, you know, and create a swath of of trashed plants. So I will try to pick carefully and position and and do whatever I can to minimize that impact. I may have lost my thread there in terms of what you asked, you know, it's such an important yeah, Thanks. just the, the, you know, what does it mean to be doing ethical photography and what does that look like in practice or when we're sharing our images or yeah. or another way of looking at it is what responsibilities do we have as outdoor photographers when it comes to protecting the natural world? Yeah, well, and, and I think as outdoor photographers, we have an incredible responsibility to set by example to those that are there that are not truly the outdoor photographer. They're there with their phones and they're planning on just a social posting and so forth. Um, it's It kind of depends on how I feel at each situation, whether I will say something. I almost mm-hmm. always will say something. For it. And with wildlife in particular, I've noticed this. Yeah. I was walking down a a paved trail at Mendenhall Glacier. So it's heavily used. They've paved it. This is where you're walking, right? So that's cool. And I come up on a group of people and they're all bunched up and I'm like, well, what are they seeing? Right. And so I'm sort of in the back and I hear, oh, it's a porcupine up in this young tree, this sapling. And Basically, two feet, three feet off the trail, and maybe about four feet above the average height of a human is a porcupine, and he's just trying to hang out and rest, you know? Yeah. And this guy picks up some pebbles and is throwing pebbles at him to get him to look his way. Oh, good grief. And, you know, they were little pebbles, okay? So it wasn't going to hurt the porcupine in that sense, yeah, but it was but stressing the porcupine. Of course, you know? yeah. And, and I, I just said, I'm sorry, but this is really not appropriate behavior. I said, that animal is resting and it needs to be left alone 
You can observe it, enjoy it, but throwing things at it, trying to get its attention is really not responsible behavior. Well, he didn't like yeah. to hear that because I, I called him on it in front of a group. Right. But I couldn't let it go. Uh, yeah. Yeah. You know? I um, think that's great. And yeah. you just, I, I just have to, I feel that it's, it's really up to us when we see something wrong, like, please don't feed the pica Cheez-Its, right. you know, <laughs> <laughs> I did say that one time and this woman came back at me and she just was blasting me. And you have to be willing to take that. You yeah. just have to be willing to say, ma'am, I'm sorry, but it is inappropriate. It is not their natural diet and you're hurting it instead of helping it. Right. And then you have to leave the situation and know that you've done the best that you can, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It's so unfortunate that there's not I mean, those are, I think, good ways of of communicating the message. And but how to communicate it in a way that it would be better received, I think, is not just in the delivery of the message, but it's also in the person who's receiving it and where they're coming from. And yeah. it seems like most of the time people are just very offended and angered by being told like, hey, you know what, what you're doing is not a good thing or it's not right. Yeah. It's hurtful. Yeah. And instead of being like, oh, my gosh, I'm so sorry. You know, I didn't know. It's, you know, get out of my face. Yeah. <laughs> I'll do yeah. what I want. <laughs> and, and I try to be as diplomatic as possible. Usually I try by informing, by just simply saying, you know, pikas are vegetarians and they eat only grasses and seeds and so forth. And they've never seen a piece of cheese in their life. And so by feeding them Cheez-Its, it's probably not doing a good thing for their digestive tract and ultimately you know, that could hurt them in the long run. And so I will try to be as gentle and informative as I can up front, you know, yeah. but, but you still are at the, 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 the whim of how that person is going to choose to respond. And you just have yeah. to be hardened enough to take it, you know, if they decide to come back at you. So, yeah. and, and I think with wildlife too, I also try, uh, I, I, First off, I think that you can only really be a good wildlife photographer if you have taken the time to care about the animals and the birds you're photographing and to learn about their behavior, learn about their habitat, learn whatever you can about them, because then you are approaching it with, an, in, with information that helps you photograph right. uh, from that perspective and tell a story. Um, and it also enables you to be able to make sure you're not impacting that animal or bird space. So yeah. you learn how to read body language. You learn that you've just gotten a little too close and you need to back up, that mm -hmm. this, this amount of distance is going to be the maximum that they'll feel comfortable letting you be to right. photograph them, you know? Yeah, yeah, for and, sure. And I think that's important. And so many people are caught up in trying to get that shot. <laughs> And they're so excited to see it. And I get that. But they're not thinking about the well-being of, of and the welfare of the animals Yeah, in the interest sure. of getting the photo. Yeah. One time I was walking along this trail out in the middle of a wilderness area in Vermont. And I came around the corner on the trail and there was a young moose right there. And I was just like, like, what are the chances of this happening? You know? Yeah. And so and we just sat there like both of us were sort of stunned. And I was like, oh, gosh, where's mama? And I didn't see a mama moose around. And it was just the young moose, probably a yearling. And um, and she was perfectly happy just looking at me and chomping on the leaves. And 
So I, I, you know, I didn't, I, but I so wanted to approach her because there's like this, this thing in me that's like, oh, you're so sweet, you know, and scratch behind the ears. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Can you want to smell my hand? You know, so I I understand that temptation, but of course I didn't do that. I did photograph her. I had a, a telephoto lens and I was able to photograph her, which was so fun. And I, I didn't approach her at all because I didn't want to spook her or, or anything. And, um, but I understand that temptation of of connection in a way, you know, oh, you yeah. sort of want to connect, even if it's not an appropriate connection to make. Yeah. yeah so, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, well, before we wrap things up here, are you up for doing a, a lightning round? Like a rapid fire question? Uh, Yeah, I'll give it my <laughs> best shot. <laughs> All right. So no overthinking, just the first thing that comes to mind. Um, what is your favorite subject to photograph? trees yeah i hesitated that's really hard i mean there must have been thousands of things going through your head right yeah yeah (laughs) um if you could only pick one visual element to photograph say lines texture color whatever what would it be pattern pattern yeah that makes sense given what you've shared already what piece of gear can't you live without uh that's not your camera or tripod Darn, I was going to say camera. <laughs> it's going to be a smart act, a smart Alec. Yep, yep. Uh, um, a piece that I can't live without. Yeah, piece of gear. A piece of gear. I would say a lens that gives me uh, an intimate landscape capability. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like a tele- mid mid range so like telephoto, a seventy to two hundred range. Yeah. Yeah. Because yeah. the intimate landscape is really really strong for me. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I agree. In your opinion, what's the best light to photograph in? Diffused light. Mm, Yeah. I think that might be my favorite as well. Um, You answered this a little bit already, but I'll ask it again anyway. Why photography? Why not another art form? Oh, well, that's easy because I can't (laughs) seem to make my hand do what my brain wants, what my brain or eye sees. It's uh, I'm not as coordinated with my hands that way. Um, But really, photography, it's magic. It's it's really freezing that moment in time. And it's something tangible that either in the form of a print or these days, just even on the computer screen, we can go back to and we can relive and we can share it and we can say, look, look what I saw. Look what I experienced. Yeah. And hopefully if I've done my job right, I'm expressing that through the pictures so that the person I'm showing it to, the receiver can say, wow, I get it. That's awesome. And not awesome like, oh, Brenda, you did such a great job. But nature is awesome. Right, right. They become immersed in your experience of being there. Yeah, Yeah. that is my ultimate goal is to express through photography the absolute love affair I have with the world around me. Yeah, yeah. That's so wonderful. Uh, So final question. What does connecting with nature mean to you? It means connecting with my inner self. Mm. Um, I feel when I'm connecting with nature, I, I feel grounded. And uh, intimate landscapes in particular, I'm drawn to those 
And a long time ago, I realized it's because I, I seek intimacy. I'm seeking mm-hmm. intimacy with nature, that connection that makes me feel part of the, the greater whole. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, and that's, yeah, that's, I guess that's the easiest way to say it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I love that. I, I relate. So <laughs> thanks. Well, this has been so much fun. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to share your thoughts and for being on the show and everything. And um, if people want to learn more about your photography and any upcoming workshops, I don't know how that's going for you with the pandemic or <laughs> other projects. Uh, what's the best way for people to find out more about you? The best way is to visit my website, which is brendatharp.com. I have been posting blogs. If you sign up for my, or if you do the subscribe on the homepage, you'll get a notice in your inbox anytime I post a blog or when I send out a newsletter, which is usually four to six weeks in timing, or if I have any special news that comes out, Mm -hmm. then you'll see that by subscribing. And my workshop and tour schedule is on the website. And yeah, like so many of us, you know, the challenges of 2021, 2020 and 2021 at the moment are still uh, really evident, but I am planning ahead. And so I've got some fall workshops and I have some tours that are scheduled for next year that are already on there. And Great. yeah, so that's really the best way for people to to be in touch. And if they want a signed copy of the book, a little shameless self-promotion here, yeah, um, go for you it. can buy it off the website. So um, you'll pay a higher price than you might through Barnes & Noble or Amazon, but you get a signed copy. So if that matters to Very you, nice. then go to the website and, and go to the store area and, and click away. Okay, excellent. Well, I'll definitely put all the links in the show notes for this episode so that people can find that really easily. So perfect. Well, yeah. it's just been such a pleasure. I've had so much fun talking to my my kindred spirit, both yes, in name yeah. and in your passion for photography and nature and the, and the outdoors. It's been really wonderful. It's been a lot of fun. So thank you so much. You are welcome. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview with Brenda Tharp. And again, you can find out more about her workshops and books and see her photography at brendatharp.com. And be sure to follow her over on Instagram at brenda underscore tharp underscore photo. And again, thank you, Brenda, for coming on the show. And thank you, listeners, for sticking around to the end. I appreciate you. And I hope you got a lot of value out of today's episode. If you want to get the links and other information mentioned today, you can find them in the show notes at outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash episode five. We have several exciting guests coming up on the podcast, including wildlife conservation photographer Jamie Heimbook, who helps photographers use their images to tell stories with impact, and biologist turned landscape photographer Rob Hirsch, who shares his experiences photographing Yosemite and the surrounding Sierra Nevada. Be sure to follow the podcast on your favorite podcast player so you don't miss out on these great conversations. And I'll be back here next week with a Tidbit Tuesday episode where I'll also be answering a couple of your submitted questions. If you're loving the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would take a minute to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. 
This is currently the best way to help others learn about the show, and I appreciate it so much. And last but not least, if you have a question you'd like me to answer on Tidbit Tuesday, just click the link in today's episode description or head on over to outdoorphotographyschool.com forward slash podcast, and you'll be able to record your short message. Till then, get outside, my friends, and find yourself a little nature. Take care.